As we come now before the very Word of God, uh, we'll be in 1 John chapter 3. If you're looking in your worship guide, you'll see that we have quite a number of verses to take up this morning, but uh, we'll read them all, but won't dive deeply into all of it. Uh, but 1 John chapter 3. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, uh, Jesus has told us that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, and we believe you. Lord, by, by your word and your work, would you free us now? Help us to hear the truth of this and to take it to heart, that we would live not as slaves of fear, but as sons of righteousness. By your Holy Spirit, would you press this upon us? Help us to hear and to believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we'll take up these first 18 verses, uh, but we'll begin in verse 1. So 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we loved the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of God. Now, we want this morning to take up a particular theme in this text that's important, but is also troubling and a bit perplexing that will take a bit of time to untangle. I will name that theme in just a moment. But first, let me remind us that last time we looked at just these uh, first few verses of this text, and from those initial verses, we've seen an important fact that we are now children of God. That God has made every believer who is in Jesus his own child. Which means that the primary way that the Christian should view himself is as as God's child. And the primary way that the Christian should view God is as our Father. And God is a good, wise, loving, kind Father. Our sonship is good ground for us. It is a permanent place to stand because it's grounded in God. I am not born from anything that I have done or chosen or believed even. Before even all of that, God, out of his own free grace, has made us his children forever. That's a truly stunning fact, that we are God's children. So that's the fact of the matter. Now we take the act of the matter. That is, how are we to live as God's children? There's a lot of general instructions throughout this text. Uh, We're to purify ourselves through hope in Jesus. We're to practice righteousness. We're to abide in God. We're to lay down our lives for the brothers. We're to provide needs for others as we're able. The summary of basically how the Christian, one who is born in God, is to live is just to love. That's the summary of Christian living, to love not just in word or talk, but in action and in truth. And all of those deeds that we're we're called to do, each of those deserve their own sermon, but I'll spare us uh, the time it would take to do all of that, and I won't preach on each one individually. We just look at them as a whole. We might look at all those directives and think, I, you know, I do those, don't I? At least sometimes, maybe not fully, but partly at least I do some of these things. I I try to love. I want to love. I 
strive to love. I'm, I, I want to seek after righteousness. I, I want to pursue providing for others' needs as I'm able. I hope that's true of all of us. I think it probably is. Praise God if that's true of us. But the practice of righteousness is not what gives me pause in this text. And that's not what we'll be looking at today. Today we're looking at the opposite of the practice of righteousness. We'll look at the practice of sin. It's peppered throughout the text, but we'll focus on verse 9, which I'll read again. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Oh. Well, that's uncomfortable. Because do I do that? What does it really mean here? that someone who is born of God cannot keep on sinning. There are some people who are going to to brush this off right away and go, ah, everybody sins, though. Not so fast. That approach, oh, everybody sins, we know everybody sins, that approach gets things backward. It is backward to start with my experience as I come to the Bible. We do not want to have our experience shape the Word of God. So there are some people who would think, well, clearly, obviously, through our experience, we already know the truth about various things. We already know the truth about gender and sex and sexuality, so the Bible has to conform to that. We already know the truth about money, what's good about retirement and insurance and property, so the Bible needs to conform to that. We already know what's true and good about war and conflict, and so the Bible has to conform to that. We already know what makes us happy what makes us feel good and alive. So the Bible needs to conform to that. All of that is backward. That is not really listening to what the Bible has to say. That would be writing our own Bible to fill it full of things that it should say based on my own limited, fragile experience. But if this is really the living true, breathing word of God, then he means to tell us something by it. And we need to listen, and not only listen, but follow wherever his word would take us, even if it's scary, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's against the grain of my own experience. Experience should not shape the Word of God. The Word of God should shape our experience. So now, the Word of God says that a child of God cannot keep on sinning. If we're to take that seriously, we need to consider what he means. 
from the outset, right out of the gate, we can know what he does not mean by this. When he says we cannot keep on sinning, he does not mean that we are impeccable. Impeccable is an old Latin-based word, meaning not sinning. (laughs) Sinless. We are not sinless. We know that, not because our experience tells us that that's the case, although my experience also tells me that that's the case. We know that because the text in John tells us that. John says in chapter 1, verse, uh, where is it, verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He says in chapter 2 that if anyone does sin, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So, So John assumes that we all, even Christians, we all still sin. That's fitting with the rest of the teaching of the Bible. In Ecclesiastes, we're told in chapter 7, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So if we still continue to sin, if children of God are not impeccable, that is, our, our sin is forgiven in Jesus, but we're not sinless, what then does he mean here when he says that we cannot keep on sinning? You know, surely there's not a contradiction. The Bible's not speaking against itself. It's not like John forgot what he wrote two minutes ago or, or, or made a, a mistake. You know, he just forgot his whiteout or his eraser wasn't at the... So he just left it in. Oh, you know, it'll be fine. This all fits together in some coherent way. The simultaneous truths that Christians sin... And it must also be true in some sense that Christians cannot sin. How? Faithful Christian readers of the Bible have wrestled with this text and the ones around it uh, for a very long time. Wrestling with the Bible is a good thing. It shows that we're seeking to understand and to listen well. Uh, But those who wrestle with these things have suggested a number of potential ways that we might interpret or understand this text in a way that helps us make sense of this good tension. I'll mention several of these suggestions, although most of these views have problems. And I'll note their problems uh, so that we can learn from them. But at the end, I want to leave us with an approach that fits best, where we can hang our hat on. But let's look at a number of approaches to the text first. Some would say, when we look at this verse and the words that we cannot keep on sinning, some would say that this refers to some particular sins. Not all sins, some particular sins. That is, the Christian might still sin in general, but there are certain sins that we cannot do. Maybe that's the the so-called unforgivable sin. Maybe that's some particular sins related to loving our brother. Maybe Maybe it's the Roman Catholic categories of the mortal versus venial sins, which we don't really find in the Bible. But there's some particular sins that we cannot do. The problem with that view is that there is no indication in the text that John's referring to just some sins. In fact, he starts this whole section in verse 4 by saying just sin is lawlessness. 
all lawlessness. He's not talking at all about certain sins. He's talking about every deviation of God's law. By this, he's referring to all sin. So we shouldn't reduce this to just particular sins. There's another version of this, a second interpretation, a, kind of a spin-off, that says this refers maybe to just intentional sins. That is, only sins that we do on purpose, willful, deliberate sins. So this view goes, hey, the Christian might sin unintentionally, the Christian might sin ignorantly, but we, but we don't sin on purpose. And that may sound silly to some people, but that was the view of the early, early Wesleyan Christian tradition. And many still hold to a view like this. The problem with that are many, but, but nothing here in this text divides out intentions and actions. It's all just sin. If we think about it, everyone in the Bible, except for Jesus, sins. And not just whoopsie accidentally intentionally. Even the most famous ones, the priest Aaron, the king David, father Abraham, the apostle Peter, the prophet Jonah, all of these men sin intentionally. Surely we do not think that all of these people cannot be born of God. People who say that they only sin on accident are just fooling themselves. And no one else is fooled by it. They're, they're, they're like the person who's stopped by the police car for speeding. I know you've never done this. You get stopped by the police car for speeding, and, and he says, do you know what you do? And, oh, here's the speed limit. And you go, I had no idea what the speed limit, you know, as if this was the very first time I've ever driven a car. You know, that's an intentional thing that is done. So that's not a... Great view, but some hold it. The third view of this, you know, how do we, what does it mean to keep on sinning? Some might say that maybe that's the effect of the old sin nature. So this view goes like this We Christians, through the grace of Jesus, are made a new man in Christ. That's true. We're made a new man in Christ, and we are called to put off the old self with all of its corruptions and all of its deceitful desires. So, so the view goes here that when we sin, it isn't really me who sins. I'm a new man. I cannot sin, but it's the effect of my old nature that sins. The problem with that is in the Bible... Sin always comes, without exception, with a personal sense of responsibility. You know, when we sin, it is not some external nature that sins. It's us. It's me who does that sin. I cannot just assign it to some old nature and distance myself from it that way. There's some then who say, oh, well, maybe this, this section, John's talking about some ideal state that we're to be in. Maybe that's talking about our future glory in which we will be sinless, uh, and that uh, for now it's something that we're striving toward. But, uh, so John's not talking from experience, he's talking about a goal. Hey, we're not, we're not supposed to be sinning. 
So let's shoot for that. The problem with that is John's not giving us a paradigm here. He's describing our practice. The things that we're doing now, in fact, if you look at the text, the word practice gets repeated over and over and over and over throughout this section. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He's not talking about a hypothetical ideal. He's talking about what's happening now. There's a fourth and final, there's others, but final one that I'll mention and press upon because this is the most common interpretation and you maybe have heard it and maybe even think it. The most common interpretation of this text when John says he cannot keep on sinning is that this refers to habitual sin. That is sin of habit. It's sometimes called besetting sin in some of the the old King James language that refers to continual, persistent patterns of sin. So the argument goes that a person born of God might sin here and there, but cannot make a particular, regular habit of sin. He cannot keep on sinning. You know, even the words keep on Keep on, those aren't in the original Greek. Some translations just say he cannot sin. But people go, oh, well, this is an active tense. People that get all nerdy about the, the grammar language, which I love to do, it indicates that there's some ongoing sin, that the Christian can't sin in an ongoing way. That's a very common view of this text. And it sounds maybe plausible to some, but there are lots of problems with this view as well. One of the problems is, when do we count sin as a, as a habit, as a pattern? Is it after you've done the same sin twice? Three times? Ten times? Is it after you do it a certain number of times a day, or a certain number of times a week, a certain number of times a, a year? And then what happens if that pattern seems to be broken, but we return to some old sin, fall off the wagon, say? Is that part of habitual sin? Does that mean we're not a Christian anymore? You know, if we think about it, there are only a finite number of sins. There's only so many ways that we could violate the law of God and disobey him. And if in this life we, we never repeat or return to the same types of sin, we'd quickly run out of new sins to commit. And eventually, very soon, we would be sinless, impeccable, without sin. And we know that's not true. Really, at the root of it, we, we know from, from Jesus that the greatest commandment the summary of the whole law of God is what? You probably know it, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment, Jesus says. And I don't know about you, but I don't know a single person, including myself, who consistently does that, loves God with all heart, all soul, all mind, all strength. 
which means that we consistently break God's law. There is ongoing lawlessness, ongoing sin, sin that we keep on doing habitually. So so if in order to be a Christian, that means there's no habitual sin in us in any form, there would be no Christians, not a single one. That cannot be the primary meaning of this text. So then if that's not what he means, what does the word of God mean here? What does he mean when he says that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning and that he cannot keep on sinning? I don't know what to call this view. I wrestled with giving it a name just to be snappy and catchy. I'll call it inconceivable sin, but I don't know what that means exactly. So let me do my best to describe it instead of just trying to name it, okay? This view hinges upon what we mean by the word cannot. Listen, he says, you cannot keep on sinning. It matters what we mean by cannot. There are several places in the New Testament that speaks in this particular way, but there's one really clear, helpful example. Jesus is telling this parable in Luke chapter 6, and in this parable he says, a blind man cannot lead a blind man. It's a quote. A blind man cannot lead a blind man. Now, by cannot, Jesus doesn't mean it's physically impossible for that to happen. Right? He doesn't mean that this can't be done. A blind man could take another blind man by the hand and lead him. Lead them both right into a pit, Jesus says. (laughs) He doesn't mean it's physically impossible. He means that if this were to happen, there is something insane about that. There is something stupid, if I can say it, about that. It is so ludicrous that it's virtually inconceivable to anyone who could see clearly that a blind man would lead a blind man. So in a similar way, when John tells us that a person born of God cannot sin, he doesn't mean it's impossible for Christians to sin. That's not true. He means it's just inconceivable for Christians to sin. It's just bananas. There's a strangeness about it. It's so bizarrely inappropriate. So let me give you an example. If we've got a family going on a nice family walk, as families do, and with them they've got a little one, let's say the littlest ones who can walk, a toddler. And toddlers, as they go along, collect things, don't they? And and so they're walking, and this small toddler finds on the sidewalk, I don't know how else to say this, a dog dropping. How interesting. The child picks it up and begins to 
put it to his mouth. What's going to happen then? Mom, probably mom, I don't know why dad doesn't step in, but probably mom would swat that hand and go, no, no, that's yucky. You can't eat that. She doesn't just say, don't eat that. She might, she could, I suppose. But it'd be fitting for her to say, you can't eat it. It's not that it's physically impossible for them to eat it. They could, it would be disgusting, but they could. If they knew better, they would see how wildly inappropriate that is. John here doesn't just give us a command. He doesn't just say, don't sin. Although he could say that. He says instead, you can't sin. It's so inconceivably, wildly inappropriate. Why? Because, he says, you are born of God. The seed of God abides in you. You are born not just of flesh, but of God's spirit. And the children who are born of God's spirit by his amazing grace just can't eat dog dew from the dirt. It's inconceivable. Let me pull this right into your living room here. We know many people, Christians, are fighting ongoing battles with sin. Things that we cannot seem to shake, but we pick them up again and again and again. Patterns of lust, patterns of lies, patterns of unforgiveness. As soon as I say that, you probably know it. There might even be seasons where there's a lull, a bit of relief, respite from it, but it rears its ugly head again. And as that happens, there are some people who would hear a verse in the Bible like this and fear to read, I cannot keep on sinning. But I do struggle with sin. That must mean that I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not saved by Jesus. Uh, The Puritan John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was tormented by fears like that. Some hear this and fear. Others hear this and respond with avoidance. I'm just going to try not to think about it. I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't exist. If I I don't look at what keeps happening, maybe it'll just disappear on its own. And that doesn't work very well either. A better way than fear or avoidance 
is to look at something like this and let ourselves feel the tension of discord. Feel that inconceivable disconnect between our sin and our sonship in God. You know, the sin that we find in our hearts and in our lives ought to be upsetting to us. It should bother a Christian that he sins. The Holy Spirit pushes on our conscience and and causes this kind of grinding, grating feeling every so often in response to our sin. We're, we're, We're annoyed, bothered by it, maybe even frightened by it. That happens not because we aren't saved by Jesus, but because we are. Because he has saved us. And because we are a new man. So God then keeps reminding us of who we are and who he made us to be. He does that so that we'll grow up, mature into holier, happier people who live before him. We are sons of God. So we cannot keep on sinning. Pray with me. Lord, help us to see and to believe the truth of this. that we would not be crushed by fear or run away in avoidance, but that your spirit would work this into our hearts like massaging salt into meat. Would you help us to set down our sins by the sidewalk and to take up a better way? Stir in us day by day a greater desire for holiness, of love, and of righteousness. Lord, thank you for your grace and for your spirit to work this in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.